0: Commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Um, in the Christian life, assurance—knowing uh, you know God. There's—I'm not sure there's anything more important than that. And by that, I mean not just knowing facts about God. And by that, I don't just mean simply mean you know the doctrine about God, but that you have fellowship, intimate fellowship and experience with the God who created you, who sent His Son to die for you. He is invisible. And yet he's made himself known. And so the most important thing is for you to know you have known him. This particularly matters in regards, I think, at the place of your life where you hit adversity. Because one of the challenges of the Christian life is we know we're still sinners. We know we, we still rebel against God at various points. And so one of the challenges is to, to, to look, and when, we, when, when God allows adversity to enter our lives, one of the questions that we ask is this. Is God mad at me? Is God really for me? Or we look at our lives and we go, do do I really know God? In the midst of this, are his promises really true for me? All those wonderful promises of the gospel, is that for me in the midst of this suffering? A couple years ago, there was um, a well-known blog. Um, I've, I've mentioned this woman a couple of times, but her name was Kara Tippetts. She was a woman in our denomination. She and her husband, they had four kids. They were planting a church in Colorado. Jim Whittle, who actually comes and preaches here, occasionally did their evaluation a number of years ago when they were prepping to be church planters. But soon after they had gone to uh, plant the church, uh, she was found to have cancer. And over the course of the years while they were planting this church and while they were raising their four children, she uh, fought with cancer in and out, in and out of treatment. Three times the cancer came back. And over the course of that time, she became very well known uh, because of this blog and the faithfulness she displayed, and in, 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 in many ways displaying for the world the pain the suffering that she was ongoing, but the way in which she was crying out to the Lord in the midst of it. In fact, she had many famous bloggers, what's this the fix, Fixer Upper family. Uh, that lady would follow her so closely that she went out and uh, redid part of her house because she appreciated her so much, Joanna Gaines did. But Kara Tippett said this at one point, when she finally announced about the fact that there was no more treatment for her, she said, My little body had grown, has grown tired of battle and treatment is no longer helping. But here's what she said But what I see and what I know and what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath, and with it, I pray I would live well and fade well. I get to draw my people close and kiss them and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey. But I know I have Jesus. The promises of the gospel become very important to know you know Jesus, to know that he's going to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, to know that on the other side of death there is eternity waiting for you and that you are loved forevermore and that this cancer that is ravaging your body is not a means of punishment in your life. To know you know that, you have to know you know Jesus. So assurance and knowing you know is really important. So if we know Jesus, then all of these promises that she mentions there, all the wonderful promises of the gospel are true, but how do we know we know Jesus? Is it some feeling that we get? Affections and feelings are part of it, certainly. Is it you have some holy feeling one time that you know you're a Christian? Is it that you grew up in a Christian home? That you said, oh man, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus because this is what my family I grew up in a Christian home. Maybe as you walked an aisle or you prayed a prayer, how do you know you know Jesus? That's what John is trying to communicate to us here, and he's giving us tests, some tests to prove, to provide the evidence for us, to encourage us, to say, look at your life. Is the evidence there that you know Jesus? All Christians can have assurance, and if you want assurance, you've got to look at the evidence. Now, some may have false assurance, but John is after us having assurance. True assurance. So there's a test. There's a test for knowing you know God. And so, what is the test? Four questions for you this morning to walk us through this text and through this issue of knowing we know around this idea of a test. The first question is this What is on the test? What is on the test that helps us know we know? Right? Whenever you take it, you're going to get it ready for an exam. Professors, teachers out there, don't you know it, right? A week before the exam, what's gonna be on it? What's gonna be on the test? What's the test gonna cover? Well, God doesn't play secrets, He's not coy, He's not hiding things from you. It's not like chapters that were never covered, or things that were that it's gonna be on the test. He has two two ways, two questions on the on the test, two aspects or two sections of the test. The first is this the test for helping you know you know is this. First, are you obeying God? Are you obeying God? And the second, are you loving other people? Obedience and loving one another or loving your neighbors. First, obeying God. How do you know you know him, it says? If you keep his commandments. This is articulated both here in First John and over and over again, over again in John's gospel. He says, if you love me in John, the gospel of John, you will keep my commandments. If you have my commandment, he says, and keep them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. He also says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. John goes out of his way and tries to find as many ways as possible to say the same thing over and over again. If you love me, if you know me, then you will do what I command. The test of whether you know him or not is are you keeping his commandments? Are you obeying him? This is how we know Jesus loved God the Father, right? Because even in the garden, when God the Father put before him the most tragic, the most difficult thing in the world to do, which is separation from him and to take up a cross, Jesus says, will you take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done, Obedience, obedience is the mark of love because when you respond in that way, when you have love, you respond back with love, the love of obedience. If my wife tells me that some particular action or behavior on my part hurts her, and yet I continue to do that activity, what am I communicating? I don't love you. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about your desires. Did you know this? That God feels your sin. That God, it is personal to him. That the, the, the laws that God has given us, the commands that he has given us, are not arbitrary. They're not just kind of like th- these kind of things written in a law book, a dusty law book in some law office somewhere. The laws of God flow out of his character and out of who he is. And therefore, to violate what he longs for in your life is to violate him personally. It is personal. He feels. It anguishes God. You're communicating to God when you disobey his laws and his word and his commandments. I don't trust you. I don't care what you say, even if it hurts you, God. But the one who cares... One who loves the Lord, as John says, they become soft. They begin to, in fact, as David says, they begin to love the law. They see that it's good for their soul. They see it's good for the relationship. You know, God calls you to give your money away. You know why? You know why you begin giving your money away? Because you want to. He calls you to lay down your life for other people, and you begin to do so. Why? Because you want to. Because you love Him. Do you have this mark? Have you been so won by love? Is the mark of God's love written in your life in obedience? In obedience to his love, to his law. That's pretty critical. So the first exam question, the first test question is, are you obeying? The second is this, are you loving your brother? You actually see, uh, John is doing this thing that if we knew our Bibles very well, we would see it all over the place. And then many of the biblical authors go back to, is they go back to two particular laws. That summarizes summarize all the rest of the law. And the summarization of the law goes like this. The Pharisees asked Jesus, and he summarized it this way as well. How do you summarize the law? He put it two, in two, two sentences. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, a.k.a. obey him, and two, love your neighbor. But that's what it means to follow God. That's what the whole law summarizes, and that's what John is giving us here. He's summarizing the law. You love God and obey His commandments, showing that you love God, and then you love your neighbor, showing that you've experienced God's love. The call here, is, says, very literally, to walk in the way of Jesus. To walk in the way of Jesus. And then it goes on, interesting enough, and says, if you hate your brother, you can't be one who loves and walks with Jesus. Because why? It sounds cheesy and cliche to say it, but Jesus walks the way of love. He loves his brothers. In fact, he loves his enemies. In fact, This is what it says in the most confusing verses in this whole section are verses seven through eight, right? It gives that whole like, I'm giving you a new commandment, but it's an old commandment too, but it's also new. So which is it? Well, it's both. It's old and it's new. It's old in the sense that loving your neighbor has always been there. Going all the way back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see this in the gospels, this account that early Christians knew this command. The Israelites knew this command. Love your neighbor, that has always been there. But he says that this, uh, this idea, this call to love your neighbor, has been completely made new in Jesus. You see, the Israelites understood that the call in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor meant you only had to love Israelites. By the way, in the last couple of weeks, there have been all this stuff in regards to white nationalism and white supremacy and, and, all, and all the things with the alt-right. One of the videos I saw when they interviewed somebody from the KKK is they quoted Leviticus 19 and said, I only have to love somebody from my tribe. Well, Jesus comes to the earth and he says, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Leviticus 19 does not mean you simply have to love Israelites. Jesus comes, and he completely shows us a whole new way to love, because he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But not only that, but love your enemies too. And not only that, but I'm going to show you what it looks like to love, which is to lay down your life for your enemies. And so, in other words, the display of what it looks like to love your neighbor has exploded to being simply beyond simply those who are around you, those who look like you, those who are connected to you. And now it's like, oh, my goodness, it's new. It's so new in Jesus because now it's expanded to all peoples. And we must go to the very ends of the depths to sacrifice our very lives. And so in, in verses 19 through 11, John provides three contrasting kind of applications of the basic principle of what it looks like to walk in the way that Jesus did. To walk in the way of love. First, he says you can't hate anybody. Well, you might say, well, that's easy. I don't hate people. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because remember in, in the, Mount of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, right, if you murder, like, that's against God's law. But then he goes on to say this. There's a second stage or a second form of hate, which is anger. And what he's talking about here is that hate can mean that you actually try to take someone's life. That's, yeah, that's pretty clear. That's pretty hateful. But he's also saying that when you want something bad to happen to somebody, that's hate as well. When you're so angry that you want something disastrous to happen to them, that at the heart, your anger has at its very heart the same heart that the murderer has at his heart. It begins there, a heart of anger. Then he goes on, the third form of hate is to say raka to somebody. That's a word that obviously we're not very familiar with. That's an Aramaic word, but literally it means you're a nobody. In other words, the third form of hate, in almost, you know, I might say the the worst form of hate, the most insidious, it hides itself the best, is indifference. It's to say, I simply just don't care. It's an incredible insidious form is to say, I simply don't care about your life. So one is to say, I want to take your life. Two is I want something bad to happen to to your life. But the the quietest, most insidious form of hate is I simply just don't care about your life. I'm indifferent to whether you exist or not. I'm indifferent to your pain and your sorrows and your life. And so do you, do you hate people? Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount is driving down to the very heart the core of our hatred in these things. But in verse 10, so he's calling us to the mat in verse 9. In verse 10, though, he says, but you were to love. That if you walk in the light as Jesus loves, then you will love your brother. Now, I don't have, I don't have much time to go into to dive into this. So I'm just going to give you three in one sentence, three practical ways of what it looks like to love your brother. I get this from Francis Schaeffer. In his summary of this, he said this, you ask for forgiveness. If you're a love of brother, first, you ask for forgiveness. Second, you extend forgiveness. And third, you show practical love even when it's costly. You demonstrate love practically even when it costs you something or it must cost you something. You ever heard the, 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 the verse about bearing one another's burdens? You know, you know, Particularly how we would like to bear people's burdens. We like to bear people's burdens when we don't feel burdened hey, I'll bear that burden as long as it doesn't burden me. <laughs> but isn't that the whole point of bearing someone's burdens? Because you take the weight that is in their life, and you say, I will carry that weight. And that's what it says. To practically love someone is to love them to the point of costing you something. And this is why Jesus outlines it in 1 John three sixteen. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. So are you loving your brothers? Loving your sisters, loving your neighbor. To walk as Jesus walks. Is that how you walk? We do see examples of this. Unbelievable examples of this in the Christian life. A couple of years ago, right? A man walked in with utter hatred in his heart. and He was welcomed into a church in Charleston. They welcomed him in to a Bible study. They cared for him. But by the end of that meeting, he walked out with nine of them dead. And how was the response? The response is unbelievable though, right? And the face of hatred is what? To love your neighbor, to love your enemy. Because those families respond, they go to the first hearing, what do they say? We forgive you. We forgive you. That is the call. That is the call of loving your brother, to love your enemy, to love your neighbor. This is not something that is within the heart of man. Do you understand that, right? Every other law of every other nation has been pretty much this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. You do this to me, I do that to you. That's not forgiveness. That's retribution. But we say, forgive you. Why? Because we've been forgiven. The the means by which you show that you've understood God's love for you is you love other people. You forgive other people. True believers who've truly experienced the love of God will extend that love to other people. Some of you have loved this show. I love this show. Sherlock uh, series on BBC. I think it's, in its, it's gone four or five seasons now, but there's this great account in the fourth season uh, in which Sherlock, his, his life gets saved. Someone jumps in front of a bullet for him and he's, he, he doesn't know how to handle this. The idea that someone would, would just lay down their life for him and he's wrestling with this to the point that it sends him into this kind of deep and dark depression. And his friends go to speak to him about this and he's trying to, to egg him out of this. And he's talking through the process of uh, the weight of this, of someone dying for him. And he says this, in saving my life, the woman who died for me, she conferred a value on my life. And it is a currency I do not know how to respond to. It is a currency. She laid value upon my life. If someone laid down their life for me. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to respond to that. It is confounding. When someone lays down their life for you, it compels you. And you go, oh, my goodness, this blows the categories of how I'm supposed to love. And Jesus has blown the categories when he sums and lays down his life for us. So here's the call very practically speaking, we're pushing community, right? All throughout the New Testament, God, the various gospel writers will say, hey, love is Jesus' love. And so here's how you do it you get in community with other people and you love one another. You admonish one another. You care for one another. You go out, out, out into the community together and you bring in the brokenhearted and you love and care for them. And so the two questions on the test are you obeying God and are you loving your neighbors? Yikes, right? I, I think it might be an essay exam. <laughs> I mean, this isn't multiple choice, right? This isn't, well, I've, it's got to be that one. You can't Christmas tree this one. The Scantron is no good. It is not that easy, right? It is, it is weighty. It, it's crushing in many ways. To love like this, to obey In such a way that it connects with the love that has been shown me? So that's the test. How are you doing on the test? John's actually calling you. And I don't want to move from this too quickly. But he is actually calling you to examine your life. To say, do I love like this? Am I obedient in the way that God has called me to be obedient? Are you willing to take the test? Are you willing to evaluate your life? That's the first question. Second question. Why do we even have tests? Emperor's New Groove is one of my favorite movies. I love watching Emperor's New Groove. And the thing that it just crafts me up, I mean, I've probably seen it 30 times by now. And I, I've introduced it to my kids, and it's great. I'll sit there, and they watch it almost all the time on vacations. And I'll be sitting in the front seat, I can't see it, but I just hear all the quotes, and I'm like swerving all over the road because I think it's so funny. But there's this great line. But there's this one particular place where they're, they're going to take this, like this train of some sort down to a, a dungeon. And there's two levers that are in this room where they enter onto the train to go down to the kind of this, this, this dungeon that they're going to get into, and they always grab the wrong lever. And the wrong lever is a trap door in which they drop down into a crocodile-infested kind of swamp. And every time they come out kicking a crocodile, and they say, why do we even have that lever? Why do we even have the tests? Why has God given us these tests? I thought this was all of grace. Why do we have to have these questions? I thought Jesus passed the test for me. He did. He did. So why do I have the test? Well, the answer to that is this. is because tests reveal. Tests reveal. What John wants us to do is he wants us to move towards assurance, and he wants to reveal what is there, what is hopefully there. They're assessments to help us discern the truth. You claim to know God. You claim to know God. To have intimate fellowship with God. That's a big claim, right? If I were to walk in here this morning, I would say, yeah, I know the president. He'd be like, prove it. Prove it. You, you're so much greater than the present. You claim to know God. And so the question is going to be, you've got to show us. What's the evidence of that? Show us. You, you, someone walking, you're, like, your, your your kid says, I'm really good at math. You want to go, oh, yeah? I've seen your test scores. <laughs> it ain't so good. It ain't proven it so well, right? This is your baby. You've got to pay up. Oh, there's a test for that. Praise the Lord, right? I want to know if this is actually my kid. LeVar Ball, a couple months ago, said he's the, he's the father of a new NBA superstar. And he said, I can be Michael Jordan. You want to go, uh, you might want to need to, we, we might need to see that. You've got to prove, show some evidence that you're really that good. This it, it happens in war all the time. That this, there, there needs to be evidence about whose side you're on. I lived in Bosnia for a year where the Yugoslavian conflict occurred in the early part of the, the 90s when the Yugoslavia was breaking up. And one of the main ways in which they would know the difference as to whether you're a Serb or a Bosniak, because they look exactly the same, and there's no really difference. They'd been living together for 100 years. They'd intermarried and all this kind of stuff. And so it, but the difference was in their dialect slightly. And the way they would know is how you pronounce milk. A Serb, a Serb would pronounce milk this way, mleko. A Bosniak would pronounce milk this way, mleko. Very slight. It's kind of like, how do, you, how do you say, hey? You say, hey. <laughs> it's a little bit o- more obvious here, right? You're like, that's a Yankee. Shoot him. All right. <laughs> but there was a test to know you were on our sides. So tests reveal. But the question is, what do they reveal? They reveal that you know God. They reveal that the, the evidence, it's the, provides the evidence that your claim is true. But I want to address an issue here that gets under our discomfort. Because we, ask, we ask the question, why do we even have tests? Why, why, why do we have to have, like, I, this is all grace. I feel like we're going to get on a slippery slope to legalism. And in fact, brothers and sisters, there is in the church today, and there has been historically such a strong desire, and this is a wonderful desire, to so wonderfully and clearly express the truth about the grace of God that there is nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. And that is true, Amen. But there is within that, there is a desire, there is a false assumption that there, therefore, is nothing left for you to do in your Christian life. This has happened. The pattern goes like this. A person or a church begins to discover the amazement of grace and the wonder of it and, but, and, and how they don't provide one singular ounce of merit for their salvation. And then they go, you know what? I don't, we don't have to obey. We don't have to follow God's laws anymore. Isn't this great? They've misunderstood this is an issue that Paul faced, even all the way back to the early part of the church. In Romans 6, what does he say? He's talking about how wonderful the grace of God is. And then he has to ask this hypothetical question because it's going on in the church. And he goes, the people ask, shall we go on sinning then? And he says, absolutely not. This happened other times in church history. In the 17th century, after the Reformation, as the doctrines of grace were becoming more and more well-known, and if you were beginning to understand them and appropriate them to their lives, and they're going, wow, these are amazing. You know what they begin to happen? It was called the antinomian controversy. Antinomia means anti-law, namas law. When I was learning Greek, my dad said, my dad, he taught me Greek as a 10-year-old. He said, you follow your namas mama. Your mama's namas. Follow your mom's law. Antinomia means anti-law, that you're against following the law of God. 17th century, they're having this issue. It's called the Mero Controversy. There's wonderful books about it, about, listen, what role do we play in our sanctification? Is there something left for us to do? And the answer is yes, there's something left for you to do. You have to obey God. And we have sanctification debates today as well. In the 20th century, it's called the Lordship Salvation versus the Free Grace debate. In the 80s and 90s, there was a group of people who became, they were so enamored by this grace idea that they said, we don't even have to obey God anymore. That you can live however you want. In which they call themselves the carnal Christians. In which we're saved because of the grace of Jesus, but then we can live however we want. And we even see it today. In the last couple of years, this actually drove me nuts coming out of of seminary. For three years, I studied this. I have a 500-page document on my Evernote, on my computer, that is all about this issue of trying to figure out what role do we have in sanctification? And what does it play out in the end of our salvation? And are we right, as a pastor, am I right to come before you today and say, you know what, there needs to be marks of obedience. And if there aren't, you have really good reason to question your faith can I say that? I think the answer is yes. Is it anti-gospel to warn you that if there is no evidence in your life, if there is no evidence that you know God, that it might be pointing to the fact that you don't actually know God? I think pastorally, yes, I can call you to that. Because the point is with both those questions, though, and the end point is that with both of them, I get to say, you know what, if you don't know God, I get to point you right back to the gospel. Go back to the place in which you'll know God. Obedience and glad submission to God doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't save you. Being changed is not a condition for God accepting you. He didn't come and say to you, listen, I like you a lot. I'm going to save you. But before I do that, these three areas in your life, they got to go. No. No. The pattern of the scriptures is always this. God comes in, he accepts, he saves, he brings you into life, into light, and then he says, to show you love me, here are my commands. This is what he does with Israel, right? He brings them out of slavery in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They celebrate the death of their enemies. Then he goes, hey, I got some laws for you. Let me show you how to live if you truly love me. The same way today, if you're a Christian, or a parent, right, you want this for your kids. You You want them to show that they they know you. And to obey out of that. To reflect that in their life. You're accepted and loved and declared righteous because Jesus' performance and Jesus' performance alone. But if you're a Christian, that love leaves a mark on you. And it is a necessary mark. And without it, you will not enter into salvation. Changing is not a condition for salvation, but it is a necessary consequence. There is a difference between What merit and necessity. The merit of your salvation is what Jesus has done for you. But it is necessary that you give evidence that that salvation is in your life. Think about it this way the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. If that's the claim, that's the fellowship, the intimacy you have with God. If that's the claim that God's Spirit lives within me, I better see some change in my life, right? That would be completely antithetical that God has come to live in my life and I see no change. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature a new creature, creature and creature. You're not perfect. In fact, you'll, you'll, be, quite, you'll be quite familiar with failure. You'll, in fact, I would actually say this. You'll become more familiar with your failure because the more you come to know Jesus, the more you come to know God, he reveals more and more of your sinfulness. But you'll begin to change. There will be newness. In places where your life where there was no joy, there's now joy. In places in your life where you felt like you had to control everything, suddenly you're able to chill out and give control over the Lord. And places in your life where you're constantly impatient, you're not finding, huh, I'm more gentle, I'm more patient, I'm more kind. And when you come to know God, it changes all aspects of your life. Ryan Broyles, who was a receiver for the Detroit Lions uh, for about five or six years in the NFL, had a troubled past. While he was in college in Oklahoma, he was not known as a good dude. In fact, he got arrested um, for stealing and in fact, put his whole career in jeopardy because of that. But he had come from poverty. As a re- response to the impoverished life that he had lived as a child, he had a, a thirst, a hunger, an idolatry for provision, for security, for finances, for money. But he has been in the NFL, or he was in the NFL for about five or six years. And a number of years ago, ESPN did an article on the fact that despite the fact that he makes multiple millions of dollars a year, he lives off 60K a year. What happened? Someone who is so obsessed with providing for himself that he would actually put his whole career in danger to steal is now somebody, despite making millions, he only lives off of 60,000. Some of you can't even do that. And you only make (laughs) 40,000. What happened? He became a believer. And knowing Jesus changes everything. I began to see that my finances matter for the kingdom of God. And so it is not about my security. My security is found in Jesus Christ. And out of that security in Jesus Christ, I don't have to look for money anymore to make me feel okay in this life. And so I can give it away. So here's the call, brothers and sisters. That yes, we take the test to affirm to show that the evidence is there, that you indeed know God. And so uh, let me call you to this because I think I hear too many voices that they call you to a different, a different angle. Be resolute in obeying God's commandments. Be resolute in producing the evidence. Every year at, every year at New, Year's, uh, New Year's time, right, we see article after article. It's all over Facebook about why I'm not making New Year's resolutions. I think this is foolishness. Paul actually says this. He says, Despite the fact that I knew Jesus, I resolved to work harder than any of them. That out of the love that he had experienced from Jesus, he said, Out of that love, I will resolve to work harder than any of them. Grace, Dallas Willard says this, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning your salvation. Grace makes you work really hard to prove the evidence. To show that Jesus is alive in my life. One Oxford preacher put it this way he said this, that just simply take the term that we labor to be brought near. He said, You can hear both sides of this idea, the conundrum of our Christian life is that we labor. That's an active command labor. You do something. And yet, being brought near is a passive term, it's something that is being done to you. And so you labor, but God is the one who ultimately will bring you to Himself. But that still doesn't negate the fact that you must labor. The Bible calls us to rest in Christ. And at the same time, in Hebrews 4.11, it says, strive to enter that rest. Strive to enter that rest. So you should resolve. You should have specific ways in which I'm going to, listen, I want to grow in this fruit of the Spirit this year. I want to grow in loving my neighbor better in this way. I'm going to resolve to live in this way. So pursue resolutions. So you may give evidence, right evidence on the test. But more than that, you got to resolve to study, right? If you want to do well on the test, you can't simply show up and say, you know what, for this two hours I'm going to work really hard. Because that's how many of you are doing your Christian life. And this is why resolutions get a bad name. Because they go, you know what, I'm going to resolve, really, I'm going to, resolve to work really hard on this test. I'm going to be here for two hours, I'm going to take the entire lot of time, and I'm going to work really hard to give evidence that I know what I know the problem is, if you don't know what you know, it's not gonna show up no matter how hard you work. And so what do you gotta do? You gotta study. What do you study? How do you study for the test? And here we gotta to look to the object of our test. If the whole point of the test is to show, to give evidence that you know you know Jesus, the whole material for the test is what? Knowing Jesus. Verse seven and eight, the confusing text we go back to that new old commandment jesus has made love new here jesus makes everything new even love what is new jesus is new we talked about it's the breadth of it it's not just my my tribe and my people it's even my enemies and we see the depth of it that jesus doesn't say loving someone doesn't mean you simply take them a can of soup that is loving but it is something more than that look at the depth there's never been a love like the love that jesus displayed no one ever sacrificed like jesus you think about What he did to love. He left glory. He left bliss. As one person put it, he left the ultimate gated community to come into the slum in which you live to save you, to care for you, to give his life for you. He gave it up to be what? He was loved. He was glorified. He had the riches. Everything was his, and yet he came into this world to be hated, reviled, to get you, to love you. Did you know that he went to hell for you? Have you ever gone to hell for someone out of your love? God says to Adam, this is how the Bible works, and this is the story of the Bible and the story of humanity. God says to Adam, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you and bless you. He says to Jesus, if you keep my commandments, I'll completely reject you. And yet Jesus said, yes, I'll go keep your commandments perfectly to the point of taking to the cross where you'll reject me so that you may love those who are unlovely. You see the depths of the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. The pattern of the Bible is this, to see the love of God for you. Now, in light of that love, shouldn't you trust in his commandments? Like, if you've had someone love you like this, to draw you like he did the the Israelites out of Egypt, who loved you to pull you out of enslavement, wouldn't you then say, you know what? You would go to such lengths to me, whatever you say goes. I know it is out of your love for me. And this is what we want as parents, too. We want our kids, so often this is how we parent, right? We want our kids to obey. Just do it get it done now listen that has sometimes that's how it goes but ultimately why do you want your kids to obey because they know that you love them that you respect them that you care for them that you know on a day in a day out basis you are laying down your life for them that you are dying for them by the way kids that is true that is true i was fit when i became a parent The old story goes like this, and it's been weighed in every kind of context and culture. There's a Middle Eastern version of it, there's a European version of it, there's an American version of it. Here's how the story goes. We'll give the American version. There's an old story of an auction in New Orleans in which it's a slave auction. A bunch of beautiful young girls are put on the auction block with a bunch of men leering at them. But for one particular girl, the price soars, not because she's going to be such a great source of labor. No, the intentions here are even worse than slave labor. They're far more tawdry. The bidding of this young girl goes higher and higher, and finally one man prevails, and he pays the price. But when he comes to retrieve her, he pays the price. She says to him, you can't buy me. She spits on him and says, you don't own me. I am not yours. I'm not going to do what you want me to do, and I'm not going to go where you want me to go. To which he says, I did not buy you to use you in that way. I bought you to set you free. You're free to go. And to that, she looked at him and said, Well then, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. You know, there's a story in the Bible that goes the same way. It's called the story of Hosea and Gomer. There's something about about encountering the love of Jesus, the fact that he would come and he would ransom his life for you, that you would say, I'm not going to spit on you anymore. You've shown your love for me. You have set me free. Free and so, brothers and sisters, very clearly, we talked about spending time in God's words. Don't spend time in God's word to check something off the spiritual box. Check, spend time in God's word because you long to know the lover of your soul. Heard this illustration of a pastor who at a wedding. As pastors, we get to go to a lot of weddings, and we hear some awful toasts. I mean, just, I mean, just awful. they are so vapid, but this is a good one. The best man was giving a toast, and he toasted the groom, who was his brother. And everyone got quiet when he came to these words. He said in front of everybody, It is no secret to anyone here that I have never liked you. All of our lives we have fought and argued and have been like oil and water, and we are still so very different. But I have grown to love the person you have become since the day you have met her. The more you are with her, the more I am drawn to you. The more you are with her, the more I want to be around you. The more you are with her, the more I see the best version of yourself. That's the reality of it. The more you're with Jesus, it changes you. The more you know his love for you, you become secure. You become kind. You become beautiful. You become more loving and lovely. You become the you that God created you to be. So when you experience the love of God in that way, it changes you. That's how you study for the test. Another love of God for you. One last question, and we'll come to a close. How do you respond to the results? How do you respond to the results of the test? Now, a bit, quick, quick bit of clarification, because here's where the, the whole kind of uh, illustration runs down. There's not, we don't, we're not going to get to the end of our lives and there's going to be one, one test that we're all preparing for. The reality is, is what we're thinking about John's giving us here is it's, it's not study for three days straight and then take the exam. This is an ongoing test and an ongoing studying. This is what the Christian life is. The whole imagery has its implications because we are always studying for this test. We are always taking the test. We're always showing, do we know God? Do we love Him? by the way, God has given us to this in the rhythm of the church. You know what it's called? It's called the Lord's Supper. Because whenever we take the Lord's Supper... What are we called to do? We're called to look at what God would do for us. And as we come to his love to evaluate our lives and go am I repentant of my sins? Do I need to repent of something as I come to the table? Do I love people well? Do I have something against somebody? Does somebody have something against me? This is this this is actually in the Bible. This whole like go and make sure your brother has nothing against you before you come to the table. And this is the idea. That you would show that I'm obeying God's commandments and I'm repenting when I don't and I'm loving my brother and I'm repenting when I'm not doing that well so that when I come to the table, come to the table, I can know God better. I can know God better. It's great questions to ask. John's goal is that you would pass the test, by the way. They're hard words that we have to ask. Some hard questions we have to ask about ourselves. We have to do some real evaluation. But John's desire and in fact his expectation is that you, beloved, that's what he calls you, my beloved children, that you would pass the test. He has faith because of what he sees in your life that you would pass this test in King's Chapel. For so many of you, I, this is my expectation as well. You pass the test so much better than I do. I get it from proclaim the knowledge of God, but you know it so much better, I think. Way you live out your lives. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to say, praise be to Jesus, I have passed the test today. That God is at work within me. You should be encouraged. And by the way, this is another reason to be in community groups, because you should find someone in your life who knows you so well that they would actually tell you that. In the church, we all seem to have this gift, or think we have this gift, the gift of telling someone what we think is wrong with them. By the way, this gift is never mentioned in the Bible. It's not a gift that is spirit-given. It is a gift that is, comes naturally to you. It's called selfishness and self-righteousness. The gift that we seem to, to lack is the gift of encouragement. To come up to somebody and say, Brother, you used to be like this, and I see this change in you. Man, the last couple of years, my wife has done this. I mean, it, it, you know, oh, by the way, it should be your spouse more than anybody. Spouses, husbands. you know what spiritual leadership is? It is to say these words. Honey, I see this going on in your life. Son, I see this going on in your life. Would, there was it's an old counselor who used to say, look, it, it, it out of a, a quotient of, of 10, let's say, out of 10 times, that one time you should critique and nine times you should encourage. Right? I feel that as a pastor, right? I can have 100 people tell me that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. The one person who says that was the most, that was just pitiful. A pitiful, I, I ain't remembering anything from the other hundreds. Right? And you're the same way. So husbands and wives, and my wife has done this so well for me. Three years ago, my life was crumbling. Like, literally inside, I was falling apart. I was impatient. I was angry. I was yelling at my kids. If I was awake, I would take multiple naps a day on my day off because I was crushed inside constantly. I was so impatient. I was not the man that I wanted to be, and I was not a good father. And so the last couple years have been an issue of healing, my wife has been so good along the journey to say, you know what, she's specific but she'll say, you know what, you used to have done this, and now you do this. Man, do you even know people well enough that they could speak into your life that way? This is why you got to be in community, brothers and sisters. So that's one group. You should be encouraged, brothers sisters. I hope you pass the test. Then you might say, man, there's a lot of sin there, but my goodness, I'm seeing the Spirit's work in my life in this way and this way and this way. But there's three other groups I want to talk to you this morning as we close. There are three groups here today. There are those who do not pass the test, and rightly so. There is no evidence in their life that they know God, and they're not showing it. There's a second group, is that there's are those who think that they passed the test, but have no business thinking they passed the test. And the third group are those who think they haven't passed the test, because they have an insecure, overly sensitive spirit, but indeed their lives display the fruits of the Spirit. Let me speak to each of those real briefly. I want to point you each to this same object, if that is the place, one of those places, that if you're in one of those three places, let me point you to the object. You've got to go study the object of the test. You've got to get to know God better. Listen, yes, you should make resolutions. You've got to work hard. But the thing that you most got to work hard at is getting to know your God better. And so, the stu- so here's what I call you to do. To the one who so reminded in their, your evaluation of your life, and you would say, you know what? I don't know God, and my life shows it. I live selfishly. I don't love others. I have shown no care to obey God's word. Here's what I would say to you. Would you come to the feet of Jesus, who beckons you to himself for the first time, and cry out for his love? And say, look at the way I've lived my whole life. Would you forgive me? And guess what? He promises to forgive him. If you, he promises that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. Right? That's where we began a couple weeks ago. So those of you, you've never come. To those of you who think you passed a test, (laughs) but everybody else around you seems to be telling you that you ain't passing no test. This is the person who is hard-hearted, who's self-righteous, who thinks a religious experience or two has given them access to God, who doesn't care for the things of God, who looks out only for themselves, who doesn't love the unlovely, who doesn't love other people, who doesn't seem to care about the things that God cares about, that doesn't hate the things that God hates, to you, I would say, you're a liar. And you need to speak hard truths to your life and allow other people, and let me speak hard truths to your life. My call to you is still to look, though, to the awesome love of God, because God's love is terrifying. You ever been in the presence of somebody so lovely and so beautiful you quaked? That's the experience of unholy people who are suddenly faced with the holy love of God, with the beauty of who He is. And so, yes, the call to you is actually get to know God better. Because you're thinking, listen, my life lives up pretty good. The standard is God's love, and I'm loving pretty good. I'd say you should take another gander. Because you're living, if you're living selfishly, if you hate other people, if that, is, if that is what describes your life, then I'd say you haven't looked at the love of God well enough. You haven't made the comparison well enough. And my I pray is that the love of God would terrify you. That you'd be moved to, and melted to tears. That you'd say, oh my goodness, God, I have been so hard-hearted and stubborn. I've been so arrogant. And you'd fall on your knees before him. To the third group, I'd say this. To those whose spirit is so sensitive and so insecure that you second-guess every obedient act, that you question every motivation of your heart, I would say this, that there is a beautiful truth, that God has not just justified you in all of your unworthiness. He has also made all of your, you know, there's this verse in in Isaiah about all your your best deeds being as filthy rags. Guess what? God has made your filthy rags look righteous in the sight of God. And to you, I would say, you, you have a sensitive spirit, and it One, I would say, stop your narcissism and look to Jesus. But the second thing I would say this is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You didn't make yourself a Christian. You didn't warm your heart. He found you. He claimed you. He adopted you, and he will never let you go. You will not fall away. Why? Because he will hold on to you. And that is the truth of the gospel. He may let you wander so that once again he may beckon you to himself and you may experience his forgiveness and love. But he says, you're a sheep, and I'm the shepherd. And you might say, listen, I'm a really bad sheep. You're right. You're a terrible sheep. You're an awful sheep. You're a disgusting, dirty sheep. But look around you. You're surrounded by them. And God is a good shepherd who comes to find the sheep who are so prone to wander, prone to wander, right? Lord, we feel it. And God is the shepherd whose grasp we cannot outrun. And so, brother and sister, I would say, stop, stop your navel-gazing for a second and look to King Jesus, the one who has died for your sins, the Father who loves you and cares for you. With that, let's close. Graciously Father, we thank you that, that Lord, it, The truth is that um, all of us us failed test in some way, shape, or form. We fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard. Lord, we thank you that where we were once zeros, in Christ Jesus we are 100s. That, Lord, that objectively before you we are made new and made right and we are righteous. And Lord, will we cry out to you, Lord, that that truth would be driven into our hearts, that the amazement of the love that you would pour out on our behalf would drive us to obedience, that it would compel us, that it would motivate us, that it would empower us to seek to obey you, to love one another. So gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would see our sin as it really is. May our sin be great, God, in our eyes, but may the grace of Jesus be greater. We ask in the name of your Son, we pray all these things. Amen.